This is the History of the World podcast with me, Chris Hasler. And you're listening to Volume 3, The Classical World. Episode 9, Greek Colonisation. discovered that Mediterranean trade was mastered by others during this period. In episode 9 of volume 2, we spoke of the Phoenicians, based in the Levant and flourishing in the wake of the late Bronze Age collapse. In fact, the story of the Phoenicians is impossible to ignore when discussing a subject such as Mediterranean colonisation. The Phoenicians had mastered the ability to exploit trade opportunities and they had mastered navigation of the seas. So by the time that the Greek poles had begun their re-emergence from the drama of the late Bronze Age collapse, the Phoenicians were already very active in the Mediterranean and this would have undoubtedly have involved Greek lands and is likely to have contributed towards the prosperity of Greek lands and is evident by the migration of the alphabetic script which at the time was quite an isolated example of this kind of script. Almina If we go back to episode 3 of volume 2, then we spoke about the Mesopotamian city of Ur during the 3rd millennium BCE. And we were introduced to the early 20th century British archaeologist Sir Leonard Woolley. Woolley is a major player when it comes to those individuals who have discovered so much that has led to our knowledge of ancient Mesopotamian societies today working extensively in that area of the world. After working at Ur, Woolley would work in other areas looking for links to other societies. This led him to a site in the modern country of Turkey in 1936. The site was dated to around the year 800 BCE and was near the Levantine coast So let's think about what we know already. Levantine lands from this period are very much associated with Phoenician societies. However, we have an idea that they were centralised around the cities of Tyre, Byblos and Sidon. And they were all to the south of Woolley's site at Almina. So a lot was going to depend on the artefacts discovered and their apparent cultural origins. The artefacts discovered demonstrate a variety of cultures, which is not surprising as we would expect to see such things in this part of the world, a place 
are very central in a trade network. The most intriguing find had to be the pottery, because it was determined that this pottery had to have been created in Euboea, which, after Crete, is the second largest Greek island and often overlooked as an island due to its very close proximity to the Balkan Peninsula itself. The two main ancient cities of the island were Chalcis and Eritrea, and pottery is something that archaeologists use to measure what was going on in Greek lands between the fall of the Mycenaeans and the emergence of the ancient Greek polis, mainly because it is one of the only tangible factors from this period. The burning question would be why Euboean pottery would be in the Levant. The obvious answer would be that traders sold Euboean ceramics to the people of the Levantine lands, or that this site was a type of international marketplace. However, Leonard Woolley believed that this was evidence of Greek colonisation, and believed the Euboeans had established an overseas colony. To this day, experts are divided on whether Almina demonstrates an emporium of diverse trade or evidence of Greek overseas expansion. Since Woolley's discovery, it does seem that popularity for the emporium theory has increased, but there is no doubt that this time period is an indicator of Greek ambitions to explore other lands with the opportunity to colonise. And the reasons for this may be that their own unchallenged success led to population increase in the polis and a limit to the amount of arable land. And it would make sense that in order to maintain their way of life that the Greek polis may need to look beyond their homelands and we have evidence of this being the time that this started happening when we look elsewhere. Eubeans. If we look elsewhere, then the Eubeans were very active at this point in history. Homer's Iliad recognises the maritime capabilities of the Eubeans in the Catalogue of Ships, which is a part of the literature that makes up the Iliad. In 1954, an artefact was discovered at a burial site on the island of Ischia. Ischia is a small volcanic island which sits on the edge of the Gulf of Naples, so we have switched from the Balkan Peninsula to the Italian Peninsula. In order to travel from the Greek lands to Ischia, you would have to navigate around the southern tip of the Italian Peninsula, so it would have required some decent seafaring skills. As for the artefact, it was a small ceramic wine cup found within the grave of an adolescent. The significance of the cup was that it was Euboean in style and had a written inscription on it. When translated into English, the inscription reads something like Nestor's cup, good to drink from. Whoever drinks from this cup, him straight away the desire of beautiful crowned Aphrodite 
will seize. According to Homer's Iliad, Aphrodite was a daughter of Zeus, and she was the goddess of love, beauty and sexuality. So her powers of female physical persuasion were encapsulated in this inscription. We can even see reference in Homer's Iliad to an object called Nestor's Cup. But the Nestor's Cup in the Iliad was a golden cup, so it appears that the one discovered on Ischia was a reproduction, or even more likely, a souvenir. Maybe Nestor's cup was a mythological object that was popular knowledge among Greek societies who were privy to the works of Homer, with Homer's works possibly being the bedtime stories of young Greeks growing up in Greek lands. The cup bears one of the earliest examples of ancient Greek writing using an alphabet similar to the Phoenicians, and not the previously used linear B writing system of the Mycenaeans. Interestingly, the text is written from right to left, instead of the more traditional way of writing modern Greek, which is from left to right. The fact that the writing is in reverse alludes to something that we described in episode 22 of volume 2, where we described the migration of alphabetic writing and how alphabets that migrated into Europe changed to a left-to-right direction from the original right-to-left, which remained the norm in Asiatic lands and alphabets such as Arabic. The settlement on the island of Ischia is referred to in antiquity as Pithikuse, and many have claimed it to be one of the, if not the, earliest overseas Greek colony. However, this is quite a claim in a time where written evidence is near enough non-existent and the fact that the wares discovered at Pithikuse include artefacts from other places such as the Levant. So as much as it is likely that the Eubeans were the dominant influence on Pithikuse, it may well be that the Phoenicians were welcome here too, which points to a similar theory of a trade emporium that we found at Almina in the Levant. The dominance of the Eubeans can be supported by the fact that they did manage to establish a colony on the mainland adjacent to Pithikuse, which came to be known as Cumi. Exactly what motivated the Eubeans to venture away from their homelands and establish colonies elsewhere is a bit of a mystery. Certainly, they didn't abandon Euboea and it was specifically the people of Chalcis who established Cumi, very similarly to the fact that it was the Phoenician people specifically from Tyre who founded Carthage in the previous century. It may have been that growing populations meant that Chalcis in particular was battling for arable land from Eritrea and other Euboean polis. We may never know, but what we do know is that they were there, and that they were making a good job of it. Euboean artefacts from coastlines show that the Euboeans were very active, and they even took control of an important water passage, which today we call the Strait of Messina. 
the Strait of Messina separates the Italian peninsula from the island of Sicily and the fact that the Chalcedons had control of it meant that Cumi didn't have to circumnavigate the entire island of Sicily in order to reach the Ionian Sea and a naval route back to the motherland on Euboea. The Chalcedons set up a new colony which straddled this strait of water and it was called Regium and this had been established in the mid 8th century BCE. Achaeans If we go back to episode 25 of volume 2 we discussed the Trojan War The story of the Trojan War, which was an event described as something that happened during Mycenaean times, was written by the mysterious pen of Homer. Homer was a Greek writer, but many doubt his existence, claiming him, as well as his stories, as mythological. Nonetheless, the writings exist, and the Greek party involved are called the Achaeans. And it is now time to investigate who the Achaeans actually are. The Achaeans come from the lands of the North Peloponnese. And the Mycenaeans themselves appeared to have been based in the lands of the Peloponnese too. So here we have a geographical connection between the two. Whether the Achaeans of Homer's story are genuine ancestors of the Achaeans of archaic times is not really known, but we do know that the Achaeans of archaic times have a strong cultural identity. The region of Achaea was made up from a number of polis. One of the polis was called Repes, and Repes had excellent maritime access to the Gulf of Corinth, which opened out into the Ionian Sea and the modern Italian lands beyond. Towards the end of the 8th century BCE, a man called Miscalus set out from Repes, westward bound where he would come across the Italian peninsula and the lands around the Gulf of Taranto. He would establish a settlement called Croton, which would become one of the most respected of Greek overseas colonies. However, we cannot be totally sure what the connection was to another Achaean settlement on the Gulf of Taranto which was founded at a similar time called Sybaris. It may be natural to think that Miscalus had something to do with this as well but the later Greek historian Strabo wrote that it was founded by the Achaean polis of Helike. Once again we don't really know whether Achaean colonisation from the 8th century BCE mirrored Euboean colonisation in that the motivations were similar. Was it a lack of arable land or a competition for resources between polis? We cannot be sure. Magna Graecia During the 8th century BCE, we are aware of there being Etruscan and Roman societies settled on the west coast of the Italian peninsula, much further north than all of these Greek colonies. 
the emergence of Greek colonies in the southern half of the Italian peninsula led to the Romans calling this area of the peninsula Magna Graecia, which is Latin for Great Greece. Yet another group of people left the Peloponnese in the late 8th century BCE, but this time they left from Sparta. And legend would have it that they would be the forgotten sons of Spartan women and Messenian helots, who were denied citizenship of Sparta due to their questionable heritage, but allowed to serve as Spartan soldiers during the Messenian Wars. They would consult with the Oracle of Delphi at the Temple of Apollo, the trusted spiritual guidance of many Greek societies, and were told to seek their own fortunes and establish their own homeland. They would head out to sea and land around the same Gulf of Taranto that the Achaeans had done, but this time on the eastern side of the Gulf, on a peninsula of land called the Salento. There they would establish what would become another important Greek colony called Taras. Those forgotten sons of the Spartans responsible for founding Taras were collectively called the Parthenii. Another Achaean colony would be established at Metapontum, possibly instigated by those residents of Sybaris who were concerned about the presence of the Parthenii at Taras, and also we can see by 690 BCE the emergence of an Ionian colony at Syris. We really don't know a lot about the establishment of this Ionian colony. The Ionians had made a homeland out of the land around Miletus in the west of the Anatolian Peninsula after spending recent history migrating from one place to another including Athens and Euboea. So even by this early time there was a real hive of activity in and around the southern Italian peninsula and in particular by parties from many different societies of Greek lands. Wider Extents The history of this time period can be looked at in two ways. Firstly, we can find it somewhat frustrating due to a lack of physical evidence such as archaeology and local scriptures. Alternatively, we can find it intriguing and mysterious due to the fact that we have these tantalising pointers towards something that we know little about and that gives us something to investigate further. During the episode on the Phoenicians, we spoke of the mysterious Pillars of Hercules, which were written of by historians such as Herodotus, and is thought to represent the promontories either side of the Strait of Gibraltar, that represents a gateway between the Mediterranean Sea and the Atlantic Ocean. This could also be seen as a gateway to dangerous ocean waters that only the very highly skilled, brave and perhaps even craziest seafarers would dare to negotiate. It would be the Phoenicians who would be the first significant culture to master some of these sea routes beyond the Mediterranean and they would also settle a colony on the Atlantic side of the Straits of Gibraltar on the Iberian Peninsula at the modern city of Cadiz, 
it had been established by around 1100 BCE and was probably called Gadir. At around 1100 BCE, Greek societies were represented by the remnants of a fast-disappearing Mycenaean culture who were skilled seafaring merchants in their own right. There is evidence of Mycenaean activity around the Gulf of Taranto at the Italian peninsula, but there is certainly no evidence of Mycenaean activity as far afield as the Phoenicians. We would have to wait until the emergence of these new Greek polis before we could see any evidence of widespread Greek presence. There is evidence from classical texts that the Greeks may have colonised the Iberian Peninsula on the Atlantic side of the Strait of Gibraltar and this colony was called Tartessos. We're not exactly sure where the city of Tartessos was based and this is possibly because the geography of the region has altered leading to a lot of uncertainty about the landmarks cited in descriptive contemporary texts about Tartessos. The Phoenicians had obviously already discovered and began exploiting this metal-rich region of Iberia, but now the Greeks were expanding their own influence, so the Phoenicians were no longer monopolising Mediterranean trade routes. By the mid-8th century BCE, the Tartessian culture appeared to have been a very independent culture of its own. Excavations from the period after this period seem to have become much more orientalised, with some definite influence from Greek societies as well as the Phoenicians. We can't be completely sure about how Greek this region of the Iberian Peninsula was, but we do know that the Greeks were colonising the Iberian Peninsula on its Mediterranean coastlines from the modern cities of Malaga up to Alicante a coastline unsurprisingly colonised by the Phoenicians also. Elsewhere we are very familiar by now about the Phoenician colonisation of the modern lands of Tunisia, where they created the colony and highly influential society of Carthage, of the Mediterranean coastline of North Africa. However, the Greeks would also find their way to the North African coast, where they would become embroiled in Egyptian politics. It is traditionally thought of as the Greek society of the island of Thera, who ventured to the modern Libyan coast during the 7th century BCE. You may remember that we mentioned Thera as the volcanic island whose 2nd millennium BCE eruption may have contributed towards the decline of Minoan, dominance of the Aegean lands. The Phoenicians had already established some trade relationships with the Berbers of the Libyan lands before the arrival of the Therans. When the Therans arrived, they established the city of Cyrene, which in turn would turn into an area of influence and multiple cities called Cyrenaica. Cyrenaica would become a highly respected entity in its own right. What transpired during the following 6th century BCE we touched upon during episode 19 
of Volume 2 on the story of Egypt after the New Kingdom. The Egyptian pharaoh Apries made an ill-advised decision to become involved in Cyrenaic politics and this would lead to a civil dispute in Egypt itself. The main rival to the pharaoh was his estranged general Amasis who would befriend the Greeks at Cyrene and depose Pharaoh Apries in order to crown himself as Pharaoh Arnos II. It is recorded though that Apries had also employed the services of many military servicemen of Carian Greek and Ionian Greek heritage. So the Greek influence on both sides of this battle were apparent. Even though it seems that we are mainly talking about descendants of resident Greek societies. Pharaoh Armos II would make sure that he kept those people of Greek heritage on his side by enlisting them as his protectors and granting them effective ownership of the Egyptian city of Naucratis. So Naucratis was effectively a Greek city within the Egyptian kingdom, which would become a respected trade city in its own right. To the east of Greece was the very important waterway of the Hellespont. We don't really know who had control of the Hellespont during this period, but it does seem like the Athenians were the most interested in the lands around it during the 6th century BCE. The Hellespont would lead maritime traffic through to the Bosporus Strait and ultimately the Black Sea. The Black Sea is a huge expanse of water but the Greeks had mastered it, particularly the Greeks of Miletus who successfully established trade colonies on all of the Black Sea's coastlines. Strangely, the other most prominent Greek society to create colonies in the Black Sea were the Megarans. If we look back to our story of Athens, we stumbled across Megara as a polis to the west that influenced the rise of Chelon, who unsuccessfully attempted a coup d'etat on Athens. Some historians believe that there was an alliance between the Megarans and the Milesians, and this is why we see that they are the Greek societies that dominate Black Sea trading. So those many Greek societies and polis were probably driven through competition with each other to be among the most extensive and intensive seafaring traders that the world had seen. Phocians Travelling a small distance northwards along the Anatolian coast and we come to a Greek polis called Phocia. Now, we have spoken of Phocia before, so let us start from the beginning and tie up some loose ends, like the History of the World podcast does so well. Herodotus claims that the Phocians were the first Greeks to make long sea voyages, but this is quite ambiguous and also somewhat unproven. However, even if we think that maybe they may not have been the first and that the Euboeans, the Achaeans, the Therans, the Megarans or the Milesians may challenge that perspective, the Phocians 
certainly were notable in their exploits of the first millennium BCE. There is evidence of Phocaean activity in and around the Hellespont and the Black Sea, much like their Milesian neighbours. It would be the 6th century BCE that would be a very dramatic time for the Phocaeans. We can pick up the story from episode 9 of volume 2 on the Phoenicians when we explained how the Phocaeans had managed to travel westwards beyond the Italian peninsula and all the way to the modern day south coast of France where they would establish a colony called Massalia which is modern day Marseille and this occurred very early in the 6th century BCE. They would also successfully set up other colonies on this coastline including Empurius, which is on the Catalonian coastline of the modern country of Spain. However, the story that we focused on was the story of the attempted settlement of Corsica by the Phocians, which was heavily opposed by the Carthaginians of North Africa, a colony founded by the 9th century BCE Phoenicians, and the Etruscans of the west coast of the Italian peninsula. We established that the Phocians would win the battle, but the cost of them was so high that they may as well have lost. The Phocians were forced back to the Strait of Messina, which thankfully was under the control of the supportive Euboean colony of Regium, which we spoke of earlier in the podcast. When Cyrus the Great of Achaemenid Persia ultimately took control of the Anatolia Peninsula, many Phocians chose to abandon their homelands, much like the Phoenicians did, and they would head west towards their colonies, quite likely heading back to the Strait of Messina, which kept Sicily geographically separate from the mainland Italy. However, Sicily was significant as it was the new home of one of the most important Greek overseas colonies of all. Syracuse No story about Greek colonisation would be complete without discussing one of the most successful Greek colonies of all, and this one was established by the Corinthians. Sicily, much like the Italian mainland, had been visited by the trading Mycenaeans during the previous millennium, but the Corinthians would set up a colony on this island during the 8th century BCE, and we call it Syracuse. Syracuse originated on the east coast of Sicily, centralised on the small island of Ortigia, right next to the coast of the main island. The fact that Syracuse was comparatively unchallenged by neighbours allowed it to become quite powerful, led by its aristocratic government. Going into the 7th century and the Syracusan expansion would see the colony setting up its own colonies on the eastern portion of the Sicilian island. The lands of Sicily were fertile and evidence suggests that the Syracusans were living a comfortable lifestyle and eating well. If we go back to episode 9 of volume 2, 
we learned that the Carthaginians, who themselves were a powerful offshoot colony of the Phoenicians, had themselves established colonies on the western portion of Sicily, with the most notable being the modern city of Palermo. However, there doesn't appear to be much conflict between the Syracusans and the Carthaginians initially. It even appears that there were healthy trade and diplomatic relations between the two, with individuals from one society living in the settlements of the other. The citizens of Syracuse chose to rise up against their aristocratic rulers and overthrow them, and this caught the attention of a neighbouring Greek colony on Sicily called Gela. The rulers of Gela would move into Syracuse and take control of the city, establishing a tyrannical rule at the beginning of the 5th century BCE. The new rulers of Syracuse would start a programme of westward expansion across the lands of the island of Sicily, which would force the native Sicilians further west, where they would have to approach the Carthaginians for help. This would lead to the Sicilian Wars. And if you want to find out more about what happened next, you only need to go back to episode 9 of volume 2 on the Phoenicians. However, we have now come to the end of this particular episode and we are now in the 5th century BCE, which is a century of military conflicts in and around Greek lands and colonies. So we will now head back over to the Greek heartlands where the Achaemenid Persians were approaching. So well done for listening to this week's episode. It's quite, it was quite a difficult episode to listen to. Um, but I think what we need to establish, we don't really need to remember all of these colonies and we don't really need to remember all of these Greek populations. What we do need to appreciate, I think, is the fact that the Greeks were ever expanding because there was just so many of them and that they were heading out to all corners of the Mediterranean and its tributaries such as the Black Sea. And uh, also they were establishing themselves in other areas of the, the Mediterranean that were maybe pre-established by other people, opening emporiums and even establishing cities of their own. So the Greek influence was high amongst all of the Mediterranean societies and that was really because there were so many Greek-speaking cultures and I think that's why we get so much brought to us down in this day and age um, that is anything to do with Greek, like the names, for example, the names of places and uh, population societies and all that. It's all in Greek, really, and I think that's because the Greeks touched so many other cultures during this period. But if you were interested in some of the intricacies, some of the intricate societies such as the Achaeans and the Phocians and those other societies that were going around colonising, then there obviously always is a map that we publish along with the podcast episode. So you can actually refer to that map and sort of follow the tracks of where all the different societies uh, went to and where they established colonies, etc. But really, we now have a good firm idea of what the Greeks had done and the fact that they were now almost supplanting the Phoenicians as the main maritime trading 
network of uh, people uh, around the Mediterranean. The, the Phoenicians had really settled at Carthage and the Punic trade had really been sort of overrun by Greek colonies and uh, Greek homeland uh, city-states that were now uh, establishing trade colonies everywhere. And we might now even have an idea as to what the Persians were sort of entering into. And uh, this is what we'll be venturing into next week, the Greco-Persian Wars. We'll be looking at the Battle of Marathon initially. And um, the relationship that the Persians had was not really to march into Greece and try and take it over, but they really wanted to try and make diplomatic relationships with the various Greek societies so they would befriend certain island races or or certain um, uh, populations of Greek societies and um, you know use that in order to establish a power base or an area of influence so they really didn't want to go to war with everybody if they could befriend as many Greek city-states as possible then they would uh, probably have a much more successful go at it. Anyway, thanks for listening to that episode. And of course, if you've got any questions or you want to discuss anything, we can uh, always go over to the forum as well, the discussion forum, and open up some uh, subjects for discussion there. If you've got any thoughts or feelings or, or a bit of confusion even about the various city-states, then we can, we can discuss there. You can go directly to the History of the World podcast website, go to the interact section, and then just go directly to the discussion forum. Now, if you like the podcast, if you, if it floats your boat and if it gives you your weekly dose of history and, and you can't wait for it, then please do consider joining the Patreon page and making a monthly donation to upkeep the podcast. And, uh, you know, there's many different uh, things that have to be purchased uh, in relation to the podcast, including, um, you know, the, the podcast uh, host itself we we're charged by the website the books and materials needed to research so we'd really do appreciate it if you could consider making a monthly donation um obviously we also um send out gift packs to people who are members of the history of the world podcast illuminati which is what we call those members who sign up and make um monthly donations you can do it for as little as one dollar a month and uh, we still give out prizes if you accrue the certain amounts that are needed in order to trigger that uh, that reward so please do come along and consider doing that if not then uh, do please consider rating and reviewing us because that is equally helpful now if you want to send a message to the podcast it has got an email address as well it's history of the world podcast at mail.com and you can send me a message um, just like Arabella Lily Coco did who put um, a message over to me saying hi uh, so I think I might be a little late to the game but I I know that you are now on volume 3 however I started listening to the podcast on Spotify maybe two weeks ago and I'm really loving it I've always loved human evolution but struggled to learn about it outside of school because of the breadth of information. I just never knew where to start but stumbling across the History of the World podcast has really turned out to be a real joy for me. Your passion for the subject really comes through and you've made learning so much more accessible for me. I can literally learn 
whilst I do everyday tasks and often find myself telling people I know some of the things I learn. Um, I specifically really enjoy Volume 1, Episode 6. As a speech and language therapy student, it was so interesting for me to explore the development of human communication, especially how the anatomy of the speech organs has evolved. In short, it's just an email to say I really appreciate all the hard work that must go into the podcast and I really enjoy it and I'm looking forward to making my way through the rest of the episodes. Many thanks, Arabella. Um, yeah, I sometimes forget that we were doing human evolution all that time ago. It just it seems like such a long time ago, doesn't it? I think it's because we've done so much since. We've done the whole of Volume 2 and now we're really getting into the depths of ancient Greece and that kind of thing. We seem like we're a world away from the human evolution episodes, but um, it's nice to know that new listeners are starting to explore the podcast right from the very beginning. So although Arabella may not hear this message for some weeks, um, if she continues to uh, enjoy the podcast, uh, it's still nice to know that she's uh, listening to the podcast and has sent a message. So We'd like to say thank you. It's a big week for the History of the World podcast. We've reached a milestone. This is the week where we've gone through the half a million different individual listens to the podcast barrier. So, yes, it's half a million individual listens to the podcast. It's mind-boggling. Um, I can't quite believe it and it you know it's not going to be long before we're sort of venturing into a million I think it will be before the end of the year that we'll have had a million individual listens and um, you know the podcast itself we're really sort of you know only just over 18 months old so uh, I just find that quite mind-blowing but I also think it's an indicator to the power of podcasts these days so this it seems to be now um, very much a part of our listening culture is podcasts and, and more and more people are, are starting to listen to podcasts and use podcasts as a forum so um, thank you to everybody and thank you for um, your contributions towards the success of this project it really does mean an awful lot to me well I'm going to wrap it up now for then for this week I'm excited for next week It's going to be our first episode about the Greco-Persian Wars, but we're really going to be concentrating on the Battle of Marathon. Now, we've done uh, one or two battle episodes previously, but we, I suppose we didn't really have a lot of material to go on. Um, You know, I don't don't suppose they were bad, but um, the Battle of Marathon, although it's not as intense as the subsequent battles that followed it, it really is quite a important uh, battle and it's going to be a lot of fun to explore it and I can't wait to do that episode and of course you know the the legacy of the word marathon comes down to us to the to this day and we'll we'll explore that somewhat as well so uh, can't wait till next week really looking forward to it um but until then thanks ever so much for listening have a great week everybody and we'll see you again next time for more History of the World podcast. Do you want more from the History of the World podcast? Then visit our website, historyoftheworldpodcast.com. You can join our discussion forum and find us 
on social media. Support the podcast for as little as $1 per month by clicking the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. The best ones will be read out. Be sure to rate and review the show wherever you listen to us.